welcome to Close Reads here on the Cersei Institute Podcasting Network. I'm David Kern, and, well, normally I'd be joined by Angelina Stanford and Tim McIntosh. And recently, Angelina has even been in the studio, just sitting a few feet away from me on the other microphone. And we did that. But, you know, best laid plans and such, things didn't work out properly. Uh, Tim is back from Aruba, but his computer was not working properly. And while we were able to get most of the show in, our little intro at the beginning actually was the part that uh, didn't work out. So that's kind of best case scenario, all things considered. But it does mean that I'm here giving you an intro to this episode all by my lonesome. Um, We are here, as usual, to talk about Gilead. Um, We've been doing that for a few weeks now, and we've been really enjoying the conversation online. I hope that you all have been enjoying our conversation here on the show and participating online. Uh, Thanks to... to, to all of you who do that, it's, it's just been awesome to see this community continue to grow, and we are really grateful to be a part of that. We don't feel like um, we are the conversation. We feel like we're a part of the conversation, um, and hopefully you feel that way as well. Hopefully you feel like you're a part of the conversation and, and that you're not just um, sitting here listening to us blabber on. Um, I can assure you that in this episode, we do plenty of blabbering on. Um, fortunately for any of you who don't like the banter, the witty banter, of course, at the beginning, then um, you're going to like this show because that's the part, as I said, that did not get included. So there were plenty of good jokes, uh, plenty of teasing, um, and lots of Tim stories about being back in Seattle now and all that. Unfortunately, you don't get to hear that. Um, We actually have the part that Angelina and I are a part of, but there's just these blank spaces every time Tim spoke. So that was hard to use. Um, Maybe we'll post that somewhere as a secret thing so you can still hear Angelina and I uh, laughing at Tim, but um, <laughs> we're here. We did. We talked about uh, Gilead uh, pages 98, 99 through one twenty eight, I believe, and uh, we had lots of good conversation here. Um, but before I kick you over to the rest of our conversation, the part that did record, which was just the actual conversation of the book, thankfully, I do need to say a quick word from our sponsors over at New College Franklin. Uh, many of you have been classically educating for a long time. Um, That means that you've put a lot of blood, sweat, and tears, hopefully mostly metaphorical ones, uh, into educating your children, either in your schools or in your homes, or perhaps uh, both for some of you. But that means that you're thinking about what comes next, and that's where the partnership that New College Franklin can offer your family and your school is so valuable. They want to come alongside you. They want to to finish or or at least continue the work that you've been doing um, through the Seven Liberal Arts, through a Christian community that is committed to cultivating and nurturing wisdom and virtue in your students. So we would encourage you to definitely go check out what they're doing over at New College Franklin. You can check it out at newcollegefranklin.org. Um, you can check out a Perspective Weekend, Perspective Students Weekend, rather. Um, you can you can go at for that specific weekend. I think there's one coming up at the end of September. Or you can just head over whenever, you know, whenever you're in the area, whenever you can make it happen. Um, if you're passing through uh, the Nashville area, the Nashville, Tennessee area, definitely go check out Franklin. It's a cool town um, with lots going on. Plus, Nashville's nearby, so great food good weather, nice people, all that kind of stuff. And then just top shelf education. So check them out, newcollegefranklin.org. Um, we are so excited to be partnering with them. Greg Wilbur, their, their president, has been speaking at Cersei conferences. He's been writing for us. And we are just really excited, really grateful to be partnering with them and um, just makes us um, realize how many great people are in this classical education renewal. And, um, you know, 
there's just so many good colleges, so many good college presidents and professors and teachers um, that it's just kind of humbling to, to just be a part of that. So thanks to them. And, um, thanks to them for, for in particular helping sponsor close reads and the, the Cersei podcast network, um, this summer. So, uh, we do hope you'll check them out. But with that, I'm going to kick you over. Well, I'm not going to kick you. I'm just going to kind of, you know, get it edited together uh, so that you are suddenly, in the moment's notice, going to be listening to Tim and Angelina and I discuss Marilyn Robinson's Gilead. Hope you enjoy it, and we will talk to you uh, next time here on Close Reads, and hopefully we will not have any technical issues. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks so much for all your support, and enjoy this week's episode. Great. Okay. So, after some tech, some tech problems that seem to be just the thing with this show, we're brand new computer, brand new computer won't work. Took, did last week the microphone setup was an issue. We solved that problem. Now the brand new computer won't work. But we're here, Tim, Angelina. Let's talk Gilead. Let's talk Gilead. All right, uh, Tim, are you ready to talk Gilead? I'm ready to talk Gilead. So I have this this uh, this question that has been bothering me. Uh-oh. It's not. It's not really been bothering me. It's been. It's been a curiosity. What's? Oh, I feel nervous. No, no, no. This is. This is. It's not. This is not. This isn't even a serious question yet. Um. You're saying it like the way your dad does a setup for something really horrible. No, I know. And then when he I does, say it, it's, it, it does like, sound like that. That's right, Tim. You know exactly what I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, I do, like, Angelina. Oh, yeah, I do. Don't you play innocent? You're about to kill me. It's. <laughs> Can I just do an imitation of David? This is, I mean, excuse me, of Andrew. Here's like a classic Andrew thing to do. You know, I've been thinking about Gilead. And Gilead proves once and for all that we're all Platonists. And you're like, what? What? <laughs> that is like exactly what happened at lunch. Like just, just, just the really? same rambling thing. And everybody's staring at him going, was that a was that a joke? Is this, are we having a serious conversation right now? Yeah, you should you should be in a staff meeting with him. So no, oh my question actually is not serious okay. really at all. All right, we can breathe easy, Jim. It's, it's curiosity about this book. What's with all the baseball? What's with this baseball thread? Okay, I was oh, yeah. also thinking that too. So much baseball. So this is clearly there's a through line here with baseball. Yeah. Uh, it comes up multiple times, four or five times in this reading. It comes up earlier in the book when he talks about how uh, he got to throw baseball with his older brother when his older brother came back from college and was like an atheist. Do you remember that? Yeah. Edwards? Yeah. Edward without the S. Um, and then um, there's the scene where Jack, John, you know, you know, Boughton's son, is playing baseball. There's two scenes like that mm-hmm. with Ames's son. And in one of them, he's narrating and, and he's like playing it up so that. If they, the kid can throw the bat, can get the batter out, can tag him out. So, like, he, the batter's running on one leg. Oh, he fell down. He's always oh, taking a long time to clean himself off. And eventually the kid gets to throw him out. He's, he's you know, catering to the to this young child's Which, by you know, the arm, way, arm strength. Have you guys, I've, I have done, I have both oh, yeah. done that and had that done to me. I love that little scene because I think everyone yeah, who's ever thrown a baseball with a young person has played out that little scene. It was beautiful. Yeah. So there's that, and then there's multiple scenes, of course, of him listening to baseball, and then they bring in the TV so he can watch baseball, and mm-hmm. he falls asleep and misses eight innings of the game. Yeah, yeah. But he says he'll, says he'll do it again. Um, so all these, there's all these different scenes. It's so it gets to the point where it's not just oh he likes baseball. She's doing something here. It seems like. And what do you what do you make of it? 
it's a, not a great, I mean, it's a very general question. I wouldn't necessarily put that question that way in my class if I was teaching high schoolers, but you know, you guys are expert readers. All right, so I have my a theory. Oh, you okay, I want to hear that. Okay. Well, I do. But mine's very shallow. I was going to set you up for like a deeper reading, Angelina, because mine's just <laughs> super yeah. shallow. You may want to give yours first, Tim, then. <laughs> I love that there's a presumption here that I'm not about to give a shallow reading. No, that's a good, you're going to go, you're that's gonna go a good deep. Re- you, you have the reputation. All Pardon right, the Tim, baseball go, metaphor. Go deep. Put, put the ball on the tee for me, and yeah, I exactly. will knock it out. <laughs> I... When I've read all the baseball is just sort of a um, a gesture to the reader about the pacing of life. Baseball is a pastime more than it's a sport. Of course, it's a sport. It demands like incredible athletic acumen. But it's baseball is such a slow, um, chatty game. It's on in the background when you're with your friends. The main action is with your friends or with your family when the game is on or when you're at the stadium. Uh, yeah, and then especially morning, at the stadium. Especially at the stadium. You're eating your peanuts, you're drinking your Coke, you're eating a hot dog, and then somebody gets a hit and you pay attention for a little while, then you return to your – it seems to me like that's kind of the the pacing of the book, and hmm. baseball seems to kind of like help, help underscore that pacing. Like I said, hmm. kind of shallow. No, I love that. I lo- yeah. like, so I literally just had this conversation with my son, right? We're, we're talking about baseball because that's the kind of, it's the kind of weird mother I am. But uh, I had I commented to him that you and Cindy Rollins. Yes, exactly. I had commented to him that I'm I'm perpetually surprised that Americans love baseball as much as they do because baseball requires quite an attention span, right? Mm. That that when you watch baseball, it is long, long periods of nothing. Followed by explosive action, right? Yeah. Now, if if you know about baseball strategy, of course, it's not really nothing, right? What's going on between the pitcher and the batter and the catcher is tremendous and intense and intellectual. And, right. and you get defensive right. positioning. And right. right. There, there's, I mean, I'm not suggesting there's nothing going on. But in the sense of, like, the average American's attention span, you could say about baseball that's a whole lot of nothing followed by explosive action, especially, as you said, when you see it live. Like, I have been to so many cheap seat baseball games for professional um like minor leagues no no major league like major, oh, yeah, league, yeah. Like major yeah, league baseball yeah, okay. where i'm in the cheap seats in the outfield like i have spent like four and a half hours watching lenny dykstra spit and scratch himself like, talk about, <laughs> like you know what i'm talking about, talk about oh, nothing yeah. is happening right and then all of a sudden oh, it's explosive yeah. right and he's yeah. diving right and he's making this, this catch. Absolutely right about the pacing of the book and also the pacing of life right just long stretches of monotonous nothing followed by this explosive action right hmm. and you can't right. always anticipate when it's going to come it's you know to kind of carry the mer- metaphor forward i think that is like that's exactly what happens in the book there are these flashes of action i think i'm thinking especially about the father and the grandfather's relationship to abolition in the civil war it gets really really intense and then it recedes it returns the, the pace of the mm-hmm. novel returns to this kind of slow meander through a meadow and then again a flash of action and just by comparison it seems to me like this is exactly the way the bible functions like if you if you were a if you were an ancient israelite much of life is without the word of god meaning god is not acting on behalf of israel for most of israel's history and then a dramatic flash of action. God takes the people out of Egypt. 
um, Isaiah speaks the word of God, reminding them to return to him. But all of the time in between these dramatic events are sometimes hundreds of years, at least generations, mm-hmm. sometimes hundreds of years. So I wonder, I, I don't know, I'm not claiming that Robinson is trying to mimic that sort of um, that sort of biblical pattern of God's action in the world. I'm not claiming that, but it is kind of an interesting kind of mirror to the way that the Bible functions in the life of the ancient Israelites. Well, well, one thing I like about what you were saying a second ago is that it, it, it it's like with the grandfather where every now and then it comes back and you've got this explosive action. Mm. And if you're writing a journal or you're contemplating something deeply, it's very difficult and not realistic and not very human to contemplate something at like the highest, deepest level for an extended long period of time. Yeah. You're going to, it waxes and wanes and your mind wanders a little bit. Um, sometimes you're thinking very deeply about something and you're really crushing it, right? Like you're thinking you're hitting it. It's, that's when you hit the home run, right? Right. Or you're trying to steal the base or whatever. And sometimes that contemplation is you're standing out there in the outfield wondering what the next thing is going to happen and where your thoughts are going to take you. Right. Uh-huh. And I think it's interesting that like that, this kind of journaling letter sort of way of telling the story sort of mirrors that a little bit. Yeah, it does. Um, it, sort, it sort of follows that sort of pattern of the way we think and baseball fits into that. Angelina mentioned that um, it intrigues her that, that baseball is um, still so popular and one of the things for me that baseball does in this book is it places it within a specific time frame because baseball, you know, while still popular is certainly behind basketball, football, and even soccer in terms of popularity in this country. And whereas it used to be like America's pastime and it's because largely you, when you hear people critiquing it, it's because it's so slow. Like mm. we're used to football with all this like action and the hitting right, and right. There's, there's lots of scoring and basketball is up and down, up and down, up and down. And even soccer is, constant consistent movement even if there's not scoring all the time and the same with hockey and things like that yeah baseball is is a it's a leisurely it's almost like a gentleman's game right like it feels has that same sort of vibe to it it's a it's a it's got a leisurely pace to it so but 75 and part of that i think is because of tv but 75 years ago or 100 years ago when you couldn't just get the game on tv every day and realize how slow it was like listening to it on the radio yeah while you did other things or playing it out in the field was something you did with your friends and you're talking and you're laughing and, and it fit into that world a little better than it does into the pace of the world that we live in now. And so baseball thematically helps tie it to the time. And also it seems to be tying it to like sort of a changing of the times here as you bring in the TV and things like that. But also what? something pass. it's like the idea of something passing away, time passing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I just rambled on for like two minutes about nonsense. Okay. So here's my theory. You ready for this? Yeah, we said it on the T for you. Okay, so we've been talking about the four different father-son relationships in the book. I think, not necessarily in American literature, because this is the first time I've run across so much baseball in, in, a, in a book, but in American culture, especially in American film, mm-hmm. baseball scenes are scenes of father-son bonding moments. Oh, right? yeah. 
they're seminal scenes. Like, even if you have a strained relationship between a father and a son, at some point in the movie, there will be like a flashback or a memory or something that that was a seminal father-son moment that yeah. he took me to a game. And he mm -hmm. talks about that here, too, right? His dad took him to a game. Interestingly enough, he took him to a game where, quote-unquote, nothing happened. But if you know baseball, <laughs> a no-hitter is actually insanely intense and exciting. Oh, yeah. and, you know, oh, yeah. It's a game in which everything happens and nothing happens, which is also a metaphor for life, right? So it's it's these seminal father-son moments. And and so I actually I actually read that scene between um, John Ames's son and Jack uh, Bowton playing the, the baseball as almost a threat to the father-son thing. Like, is he hmm. coming in as this kind of surrogate father, especially his attention to the wife, too. That's and a John great Ames observation. What to make of all of that? Um, so I mean, he's made, he's being the surrogate father in that father son catch moment. Play catch. I mean, that's part of the American culture thing, right? The dad goes out and plays catch with with the son. I that's mean, a great in, observation. Even in the TV show The Office, where Michael Scott is such like a caricature of a person, he has the seminal his seminal childhood moment is his stepdad taking him to a baseball game. And right? Angelina, that ties in so perfectly with when John Ames is preaching. Remember when he's preaching? And um, uh, what's his name? Jack is not Jack Bowden. What's the name of the son? The Bowden son. Does he have a name? It's John. It, it's, it's John. It's, also, it's the same name as John Ames. He's okay. also John. Okay. And he is preaching about fathers and sons, and there's this. He kind of gets a little bit upset at the conceit of John Bowden thinking that the sermon is about him. Remember that? Right. So, the, so it kind of underscores your point that there's this kind of little subtle tension developing between Jack Bowden. Is he the surrogate father of John Ames's son, or is he is he kind of stepping into that role? Or are we afraid that he's going to step into that role? Something like that. Well, and there's definitely the the fear of what's going to happen to this son after I die, and yes. so you yeah. have, you have a threat. There's there's the there's the threat. You know. Yeah. On many levels, the threat of a son gone bad, right, yeah. and also a threat to the family and the wife. And he went, he keeps thinking, should I warn them? Is it right. wrong to warn them? Are you going to be mad that I warned you? Are you going to be mad that I didn't warn you? Okay, let me ask you this then. Based on what you know right now, do you believe that he should warn them? I don't know anything about what he's... I know. I don't know either. It's okay, such so I a asked mystery. I asked that question because that... Because that's the answer that I expected you to say, right? Like, you don't know enough. He has all the information. We don't know what it is. What do you make of that as a choice by Marilyn Robinson? Because what's happening here is, you know, Tim talked last week about plot. And what we're getting up to this point, like, this is a transitional section in the book. For me, I, at least that's the way I'm, I've been thinking about it as I've read it, reread it this time. Because in the past, a lot of the drama is, I was alone for a while. Mm -hmm. Now I'm not. Mm -hmm. I'm going to die. So we got all these different internal conflicts going on with him. You also then have the the conflict of uh, his grandfather and his father and these relationships. But now we've got this new conflict, which seems to be this like central mystery of what what is it that Young Bowton did, like, and what's the, and why does he dislike him so much, and why is this such a turmoil within him about how he should relate to to Young Bowton, and what is it that he actually has to warn him about? Yeah, and it seems like it's an mm -hmm. interesting choice that we're, we've waited this long for that to be a part of the story, to be introduced to this sort of central mystery. And I don't want to make more of it than it is. It's still just, this is the way our lives work sometimes. There's people that come in and out of them. We don't always know how much to share about people. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it's sort of just akin with the rest of the story. But there is, for the first time, sort of a central mystery 
absolutely as, as a point of conflict absolutely. and 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 he has already admitted that he struggles with his own personal emotion about this like he's mm-hmm. just put off watching his friend and his friend's son interact like he's just put off by that we don't know why we know that he apparently did something bad yeah he's very direct right like he says in the last reading towards the end or for the last episode he says something like he he wishes that he had not been so that Bout had not been so forgiving of his son. Yes, and then he thinks about his own son and how he would forgive his own son anything. Yeah, and exactly. Then, and then he feels yeah. Bad. yeah, yeah. So I am so curious. I'm so curious. Angelina, have you been have you formed theories about what is what the secret is? I have not, but you've got a lot of interesting parallels set up, right? So you've got. John, interestingly enough, you've got John Ames himself having a bit of a prodigal son brother, right? Yeah. He leaves, he leaves home and kind of rejects the family ways, and yet he still has a great deal of love for his brother and admiration and respect. Yeah, that's a great point. Right? Yeah. But, and so it seems like Jack Bowden has done something similar. It's, it's definitely a prodigal son kind of thing. Yes. He left. And, and when he comes back, it's not on, on good terms. And then I'm definitely picking up as a threat. Every time they describe Jack and Lila, I keep feeling like he's a threat. Oh. Because, the name because of the, the husband's going to die. Because the husband's yeah. going to die. Right? She's young. So what if she remarries Jack? What if I don't warn her and she remarries this terrible guy? Yeah. If, if he really is a terrible guy. We don't know what he did. So I don't have a theory about what he did. I just think there are a lot of levels going on of... of I think we're supposed to pick up on John Ames's own issues here. Why can he forgive his brother? Mm. Why can he see all the nuances in his grandfather and father's relationship that they they struggle, but they're trying to see the good in each other? And mm-hmm. but but when it comes to his friend, he can't see any of that, right? Yeah. Hey, let's, let's go to page one twenty four. There's some interesting stuff on this page. Um. Hey, Tim, are you surrounded mm-hmm. by? Um, children who are jumping on top of the washer and dryer that we talked about earlier? As a matter of fact, I am. It's just kind of a thing that they do. It's just a little fun game that how they about, play. How many kids so... did you bring back from Aruba? Yeah. <laughs> what right. kind of souvenir back... shop was there? <laughs> I brought back four Aruvian kids. <laughs> they would... They would... Gosh, you need some child be... actors for your next play. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. So I abducted four child actors. <laughs> Huh. Well, that was an interesting, interesting choice by you. <laughs> That's one way to go. That's one way to get, get around right. that particular issue. You may have interpreted your character incorrectly, but... I might have. I might have. So let's read this section here. Uh, why don't... Um, I'll read the first paragraph, then Angelina, you pick it up there and read the second paragraph, and then Tim, you finish out the section there before the section break. Okay. Well, actually, I don't know where, if um, you guys have paperback. If you do, I think one, we have the same. This is, I think we yeah, do. Yeah, I think yeah. we're all on the okay. same page. Yeah. Okay. So we'll I'll start with this is an important thing for those who are listening at home. This this is an important thing which I have told many people, and which my father told me, and which his father told him. When you encounter another person, when you have dealings with anyone at all. It is as if a question is being put to you. So you must think, what is the Lord asking of me in this moment, in this situation? If you confront insults, if you confront insults or antagonism, your first impulse will be to respond in kind. But if you think, as it were, this is an emissary sent from the Lord, and some benefit is intended for me, 
First of all, the occasion to demonstrate my faithfulness, the chance to show that I do in some small degree participate in the grace that saved me. You're free to act otherwise than as circumstances would seem to dictate. You're free to act by your own lights. You're free at the same time of the impulse to hate or resent that person. He would, pro- he would probably laugh at the thought that the Lord sent him to you for your benefit and his, but that is the perfection of the disguise, his own ignorance of it. I am reminded of this precious instruction by my own great failure to live up to it recently. Calvin says somewhere that each of us is an actor on a stage and God is the audience. That metaphor has always interested me because it makes us artists of our behavior and the reaction of God to us might be thought of as aesthetic rather than morally judgmental in the ordinary sense. How well do we understand our role? With how much assurance do we perform it? I suppose Calvin's God was a Frenchman. just as mine is a Middle Westerner of New England extraction. Well, we all bring such light to bear on these great matters as we can. I do like Calvin's image, though, because it suggests how God might actually enjoy us. I believe we think about that far too little. It would be a way into understanding essential things, since presumably the world exists for God's enjoyment, not in any simple sense, of course, but as you enjoy the being of a child, even when he is in every way a thorn in your heart. He has a mind of his own, Bouton used to say when that son of his was up to something. And he meant it as praise. He really did. Now Edward, for example, did have a mind of his own. A mind worthy of respect. I'm not sure that's true either. Worthy of respect, of course. But the fact is that his mind came from one set of books as surely as mine has come from another set of books. But that can't be true. While I was at seminary, I read every book he had ever mentioned and every book I thought he might have read if I could put my hand on it and it wasn't in German. If I had the money, I ordered books through the mail that I thought he might be about to read. When I brought them home, my father began to read them too, which surprised me at the time. Who knows where any mind comes from? It's all mystery. Still, Bowden is right. Jack Bowden is a piece of work. Much more prayer is called for, clearly. But first, I will take a nap. Okay, so there's two things that I want to point out. First, or well, first is that the very next line of the next section is my impulse is strong to warn you against Jack Bowden, which is what we've just been talking about. So as Angelina pointed out, there's this clear parallel that she's drawing here that Ames is drawing between Edward and between young Bowden. And in Edward, he has this respect for him. Like He finds him a character that he is intrigued by, but in Boughton, who is the friend of his son, as opposed to his own, or the son of his friend, as opposed to his own brother, he is much more critical of him and isn't, it's finding it much more difficult to be charitable. But in some way they seem there's a, there's a parallel there. So they must have committed similar transgressions, so to speak. But then also she says very specifically, who knows where any mind comes from? It's all a mystery. Still Jack Boughton is right. Jack Boughton is a piece of work. And I love that the, She's sort of referring to him as a mystery, which we were just talking about how that, like he sort of is the central mystery of the story. And she drops that line in there. Maybe pure coincidence, but I find it interesting. Yeah. So you're yeah. right. There's that, there is that parallel there. But uh, Tim, as you're an actor on a stage. You're, you're, you just set out on a, on a new career to try to force other actors to stand on a stage um, <laughs> and then play out your imaginings. That's right. So what, what do you think then of, the reference to Calvin 
uh, and his comment that each of us is an actor on a stage and God is the audience, which, you know, come to think of it, that's interesting that that he would say God is the audience who watches rather than that God is the director. The the director. Yeah, Yeah, I know. I know. So, so, So given all that, what do you think of that, you know, and given your interest in, in, in playwright, playwriting? I love the metaphor. I'm going to read the, a couple of the sentences again that Angelina read. Calvin says somewhere – this is on 124. Calvin says somewhere that each of us is an actor on a stage and God is the audience. That metaphor has always interested me because it makes us artists of our own behavior. And the reaction of God to us might be thought of as aesthetic rather than morally judgmental with the ordinary, in the ordinary sense. How well do we understand our role? With how much assurance do we perform it? I suppose Calvin's God was a Frenchman, just as mine, et cetera, et cetera. I love the notion, but part of the reason I love the notion is not just because of the acting metaphor, but because it really syncs up beautifully with this opening section in that I love from Soren Kierkegaard's Sickness Unto Death, which, readers, if you pick up Sickness Unto Death and read the opening paragraph of you will forever be turned off from Kierkegaard and you will never return to him again. So do not do it. Uh, it's great, but literally you could spend a whole day diagramming the sentence. As a matter of fact, I'm going to really rabbit trail here. I did a close reading group. No way. Yeah, that's so true, David. <laughs> Beware. I did, a, I did a book reading group of Sickness Unto Death with some friends of mine. They were Gutenberg graduates, and we literally spent two hours diagramming one paragraph, the opening paragraph of Sickness Unto Death. It's that obscure, and this, the thinking is Kierkegaard is being very deliberately obscure. He's kind of mimicking this philosopher, Hegel, who's really influential in the 19th century, and he's kind of parroting Hegel, but what Kierkegaard is saying is so, so similar to what Calvin is saying through Marion Robinson here, Marilyn Robinson here. Um, what Kierkegaard says, and I think it's what Calvin is saying also, is that how do we think of ourselves? What what do we think the self is? Kierkegaard says, and I think Calvin's saying something very similar. We don't just think of ourselves in isolation. I am Tim. I am a human being. But we think of ourselves in relation to what we think of ourselves. We kind of reflect ourselves back to ourselves. But it's even more complicated than this. We actually think of ourselves in this relation, and this relation is being viewed by a third party. It's being viewed by another. I think Kierkegaard uses a capital O other in, I think, in the opening paragraph of Sickness Unto Death. So, I think what Calvin is saying, I think what Kierkegaard is saying, and maybe Marilyn Robinson is saying the same thing. We we think of ourselves on a stage, but we think of ourselves on that stage as being viewed by another, and that other is God. I think the, the more specific point that Marilyn Robinson is trying to make here is she likes it. She says, the metaphor has always interested me because it makes us artists of our own behavior, and the reaction of God to us might be thought of as aesthetic rather than morally judgmental in the ordinary sense. I think that is wonderful. And if anybody hears that or reads that as aesthetic means 
shallow or aesthetic means um oh like some sort of like romanticized vision of um insipid beauty or something like that that is i do not think that's at all at all what marilyn robinson or what calvin are implying they're saying that we are we are trying to play out the role of our lives on the stage of the world and a simple wisdom is not just as simple as obeying the moral rules as an engineer would you know follow a blueprint for building there's something very very artistic about exercising wisdom in the world it, it, it demands a real coherent sense of the context of the particular world, of the particular family, of the neighborhood, the state, the nation that you were born into. And that is more closely akin to the artist's tasks than, let's say, the engineer's task or the moralist's task. Hmm. And, and to piggyback on what we've been talking about with this idea of what exactly did Jack Bowden do and what are we supposed to think about it? No, he ends that section saying, you know, what exactly is the enjoyment that God has watching us on a stage? And he says it's the enjoyment of enjoying the being of a child even when he is in every way a thorn mm. in your heart. I mean, that's, yeah. a, that's yeah. obviously referencing... Ex yeah, being existence. It's, yeah. it's obviously referencing Jack, Jack Bowden, you know, and that God would not look at Jack Bowden the way that John Ames does, right? So he's, he's talking... He's talking so much about his own personal struggle to be charitable toward toward Jack mm -hmm. that, you know, I can't help but, but feel like whatever he did is not so horrible. Or maybe it is. But when he keeps giving clues like, I don't think God would be as upset with him as I am. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the big themes of these last several pages, and I guess the whole book is, is the idea of repentance. Yes. Like we've talked about regret a lot, but there's also this idea of repentance. And he even references how in the, in the South, they bring people up. He's like, some of these churches I've heard of in the South bring people up and they have to confess all their sins in front of a crowd. And he says it might make people less interested in sinning if they knew that everybody had the same struggles. Yes, and that actually, you know, I read some articles and actually have talked to priests about this. And one of the things they talk about how... You don't end up getting shocked in confession because everyone's confessing the same thing and they don't even realize it. Like just, you know, human existence is just pretty much the same. <laughs> you know, we're, yeah. we're all confessing the same things all the time. Well, and as he says, my best advice to you is don't transgress. Yes. That, that <laughs> oh, was I love that. I love that. It's so it almost sounds kind of flippant. It's not it's not flippant. It's sort of. It's almost like he's saying, if you understand the rest of what you've, what I've written to you, then you'll kind of get don't transgress. I, I, I'm not explaining myself very clearly. I, I just really appreciated that. No, I also, I also really appreciated that, and I forgot what I wanted to say about uh, Jack Ames, but it. There, oh, I know. When you're talking about repentance, he talks about. Uh, his father saying of the grandfather that he repented of that his whole life, that that was a regret that he had. Yeah, right, yeah. Um, that he had left, right, and gone to the Quakers for a yeah. while. And he was... So that's another prodigal son image, though. That's another son that rebelled against his father and left and then came back and was sorry. And the whole, I mean, the whole going after his, to retrieve his body or to you know, properly bury it, honor it, whatever it is that they, they've done in Kansas. That whole journey 
though. That's a journey of repentance. And he, he, yeah. and he talks yes. about the wilderness. In, in literature, there's yeah, always yeah, yeah, the yes. archetype of going into the wilderness is repentance. That's why the Israelites have to wander in the wilderness. It's because it represents their repentance, right? They have to rep- repent of their lack of faith. Uh, that God would deliver them into the promised land. So yeah. they wander in the wilderness. So, so father and son are wandering in the wilderness here to go, to go back to the father who's dead. I mean, it's just all these prod- There's so many prodigal son images and so much charity and grace for the prodigal son who yep. returns that right. I just have a well, hard time believing that that's not going to happen with the Jack Bowden character. Well, and Tim mentioned the idea of wandering in the wilderness earlier. And if you go to 119, she says it yes. as well. I, I just I actually marked that page. I was going to write red next. So good. Go for it. The moon looks wonderful in this warm evening light, just as a candle flame looks beautiful in the light of morning. Light within light. It seems like a metaphor for something. So much does. Ralph Waldo Emerson is excellent on this point. It seems to me to be a metaphor for the human soul, the singular light within the great general light of existence. Or it seems like poetry within language. Perhaps wisdom within experience or marriage within friendship and love. I'll try to remember to use this. I believe I see a place forward in my thoughts on Hagar and Ishmael. Their time in the wilderness seems like a specific moment of divine providence within the whole providential regime of creation. Mm-hmm. Now, now, my passage was actually two paragraphs up. Yeah, go for it. That is how life goes. We send yeah, I had our children yep. into the wilderness. Some of them on the day they are born, it seems, for all the help we can give them. Some of them seem to be a kind of wilderness unto themselves, but there must be angels there too, and springs of water. Even that wilderness, the very habitation of jackals, is the Lord's. Mm. I need to bear this in mind. And of course, he literally goes into the wilderness with his father on his father's journey of, like his father takes him on his own journey of repentance into the wilderness with him. He wouldn't have put it that way. Uh, and partly because the boy wanted, he wanted to go with him. The mother wasn't real keen on the idea, but he literally takes him into the wilderness with him and it's on his very own much journey. Echoes of, Did you bring me into the wilderness to leave me here to die? Because yeah. they almost uh, died. Yeah. And of course he sits down when he gets tired and yes. the father keeps walking. The father keeps walking. That was kind of intense. That's an interesting, yeah. Well, you wonder if, I mean, this sounds very old school. But like, it's, but it's very prodigal son too, that he sits down and he, but he still sees him. And it's only when he's in danger of not seeing his father and therefore losing the path mm-hmm. that he finally gets up and goes. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of symbolism in, in all of the wilderness stuff. But I love the idea. He's just showing such complexity. It's not so simple. Even in the, the whole prodigal son motif with his father and grandfather, as we've been saying, it's not so simple and clear who's, who's the problem, who's, which one's right and which one's wrong. It's very complicated and messy. Right, right, and I right. think he's saying this in paragraph in this paragraph too. Sometimes it's the parents' fault, right? We, we send our children into the wilderness, some of us on the day they're born. That's what a bad job we do parenting. Um, but others, the kids are like a wilderness themselves. They're so desperate to throw themselves into the wilderness, well, right? In the, in the previous page, he's talking about uh, Bowden's parents and how they the piece of work that they were. And despite, you know, well, I, I'll just read that on 117. He says, I was thinking about old Bowden's parents, what they were like when we were children. They were a rather somber pair, even in their prime, not like him at all. His mother would take tiny bites of her food and swallow as if she were swallowing live coals, stoking the fire of the fires of her dyspepsia. And his father, reverend gentleman that he was, had something about him that bespoke grudge. I've always liked the phrase nursing a grudge because many people are tender of their resentments as of the things nearest their hearts. Well, we know what accounts those two old pilgrims have made for them, made of themselves by now. Who knows? Sorry. I always imagine divine mercy giving us back to ourselves and letting us laugh at what we became. 
and then he talks a little bit more about um about Bowden being younger and how how he was funny generous young man full of vigor so you mentioned you, it's always sometimes it's hard to know like who's to blame like this these relationships are complicated and why they happen like why does the prodigal son leave and is the problem the prodigal son or the older brother or is it the father and should the father have shown mercy and all these questions are not as simple as like an initial reading of it might seem and so Bowden, yeah. this young vigorous funny athletic young man can spring from parents who were like that Jack Bowton can also spring from this young, vigorous, godly man, you know, and there's no accounting for why we are the way we are, right, as he says. Right. And yet, if we just stick to the narrative, what exactly have we seen Jack Bowton do? We've seen him be kind to, to the boy. Yep. We've seen him be affectionate to the boy, calling him little brother. Helpful to the mo- helpful, helpful to, to the mother. Helpful to the mom, yeah. moving that stuff. And even though Jack John Ames feels, uh, you know, tender about that, that he was touching his stuff, he says, I have to... I have to admit it was done charitably, right? It was done out mm-hmm. of compassion. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to know, did he really do something bad? He may have. Or is, or does John Ames just have some issues with him? Right. And so he's viewing everything. Because he even says, oh, I think his niceness is just mocking me. Is this a challenge? Is he coming over here to play with my son? Yeah. Is it a challenge? And when they first meet, he talks about how he like is feels seen through. Yes. And yeah. he can't tell if Jack is being amiable out of like a yeah, no, to be manipulative or to be or is he being honest like is he being sincere yes or is he, he talks just... about his politeness that puts him off too I'm yeah. so, oh he's such a reverend gentleman like but like that's a... almost one of those things you, like you feel about that you feel that you feel that people are being insincere when you don't like them like it's yes. so easy to feel that way yes so it puts us as readers in an interesting position which is kind of masterfully done by yes. robinson we don't know we really don't know it's okay like we almost we almost sort of want to criticize Jack, for, I mean, John, for right. for being too quick, too but harsh. But I do think that he has earned our trust. So I do trust him. I do trust that something happened. Right, right. Yeah. Um, but we, well, we just don't know how much but he's bearing a grudge about this. What's, I, this just strikes me. We as readers, have we, he's earned our trust. Um, so we, we assume something's happened. As readers, we understand how literature works and all that. But he also, if it is true that Jack did something really bad, Ames has not gone out of his way. He's been very generous in how he's portrayed Jack. He has not just dropped some kind of awfulness on him so that we side with him. Yeah, that's a great no, point, I, David. But well, he's so internally conflicted about how he's supposed to act toward this point. Yeah. Uh, but th- that is a really interesting criticism to be mad at him because he sees right through me. Yeah, yeah. That seems unfair. <laughs> it seems unfair to be mad at someone because they can see through your through you well it's but it's it's um it's an awkward position to be in right like no one likes you when you feel seen through when you feel i don't know i don't know you only don't like that if you think you're a fraud or if you feel like you're being judged do you okay do you i guess it depends what you mean by seen through yeah i when i I say somebody saw right through me I, i think they've seen my real self oh i took it i took it as I've seen through the facade and I know who you really are and I don't like it. So you've taken it as this kind of mocking or a, or a, like, a judgmental like, stance. Okay. You're I, not that's as why, that's good why as I took that sentence. Kind of yeah. Right. 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 Hmm. Hmm. Both of those things. I mean, either way you read it though, I think it's interesting to ask, do you think that John actually does feel that way? our narrator and do you think in some ways 
he's right to do that because he's been very open about his own failures, his own lack of faith at times, his own struggles, his own um, journey into the dark night of the soul and such. Where, where, does anybody know where it is? I'm flipping through. Which quote, Angelina? We've seen if through. Talking, oh my God! At page ninety-eight. Page ninety-eight. These people who can see right through you never quite do you justice. So I guess it's I guess it is negative. Because they never give you credit for the effort you're making to be better than you actually are, mm. which is difficult and well meant and deserving of some little notice. So he feels says he feels embarrassed and shamed. Um, but that's not about Jack Ames though. He doesn't. Yeah, that, I mean, I that's not about it. Jack Bowden. That's just his own. That's his own thing. You're right. Do okay, you, I got that messed up. Do you think though that? It, he's very like I said. He's very honest about his own struggles. Oh, yeah, and if we're aware brain. of our own sin, which he seems to be, then it would make sense that we don't want to be seen through, right? Yeah. We don't want everybody to to know all about us, which goes back to that idea of, you know, the Southern churches that he references that pull people up and have to confess their sins in front of the congregation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So to feel seen through, I mean, like if you know yourself well, if you're aware of your own failings and shortcomings and sins. Which, by then the you way, should... you know that was a practice in the ancient church? Was it really? In... Yes. They, pra- they, they would confess their sins uh, publicly. So confession with the priest was public in front of the congregation. Ooh, and uh, we. they quickly figured out that some of those <laughs> confessions between the difference between private and public sins, like confessing lustful thoughts about women in the church, uh, yeah. might be best not said <laughs> publicly. So they, they did adjust that. Yeah, my priest told me that. I know that in some churches, in like I don't know if in American churches if this is done, but some Eastern churches, you'll do it silently, but the congregation, anybody else that's there to, to confess as well, will be sitting in the pews or the rows or standing in the room behind you. So, you know, I guess if you say it too loud, people could, you know, people could hear you. <laughs> they could. <laughs> gonna whisper your, whisper your sins, I guess. But do you know what I'm saying? Like, if you are aware of your own sins, then the thing you don't want is for people to know who you are. If you, if you think too highly of yourself, then maybe you're okay with people seeing who you really, thinking about who you really are. I don't know. Does that make sense? Say it one more time, it does. David. If you know who you really are, like if you're actually aware of your own sins, then you don't want people to know who you really are. Yeah. Especially people who you love or respect. You don't want them to think differently of you because they know who you really are. Yeah. Whereas maybe like if you have, um, if you think more highly of yourself than you should, you falsely think that you want people to know who you really are until it actually happens. Uh, well, you phrase right, it like right, right. that, I'm... I'm not about to admit that I'm one of those people who really wants to be seen through. So <laughs> now that David's phrased it, as well, what a do you mean? Flaw. What do you mean when you? I don't. I'm not saying it's a character flaw. I don't know. I'm. What do you mean when you say you want people to see through you? You want to be known. I want to be known. I want, but that's yeah, different than what I'm talking known. about. Right? I want. I want people to be to, to look at me and see me as as who I really am. You're saying that you want to be genuine, though. Yes. But I think I think we're saying something different. Okay. Okay. Tim, do you think we're saying something different? I think, yeah, I definitely think so. Because I think, I think what Angelina wants is what I mean. That's what I want. I presume, Dave, that's what you want. I think the thing that John Ames is worried about is that John Bowden sees him, sees through him, sees. I just read it as sees. I don't know how to describe it. I just he has a judgmental critical stance toward John Ames. 
What are you guys whispering about? Hey. The time. I, 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 that, <laughs> he asked me if I had to go, but it's okay. <laughs> She's got to go we're pick up her daughter soon. soon. Yeah, we're actually talking about how we see right, we see right Wait, through you. Through God, me? would he just yeah. stop us? We're not even in the same room and we can see through you. Sorry. We see the that man. red stripe on your back, symbolic of, you know, yeah, like self-flagellation, sort of yep, yep. medieval style. You're, well, you're Roger Dimsdale over there. Yeah, so, Arthur okay. Dimsdale and me. So, so, so sorry. Sorry for distracting you by trying to communicate. <laughs> All right. This is, this is helpful. So you, you mean this seeing right through you in a, in a negative way. But again, that quote, see through me or see through you, was not now, about. He does say that about the grandfather. It's about the he grandfather. He doesn't say it about um, John. Are we saying Boaten or Bouton? I don't know how to say it. No, no, just it. say however you want. We're saying it both the, ways. The, the part that I'm thinking of is in a much earlier part in the book. It's when they when he Jack first comes back. I think it may be for the last episode. He first comes back to town, and he's sitting on the porch. And he, he as he's sitting there, he can't hardly get out of his chair. And Jack comes up and gives him a handshake. And he helps him out of the chair. Do you remember mm -hmm. that? Yes, and yes, yes, yes. It's the first time that she that his wife meets meets Jack. Okay. It's it's much earlier, but he says he feels like the, that Jack is looking right through him. I um, see. And, and, okay. and it makes him feel small. So that I to me help looking at that scene though as the, th the that, that's a male sexual threat. Like he's about to die. He's got this young wife, and so here comes Jack Bowden, who's basically the same age as well. As but his that wife. threat doesn't have to be sexual. I mean, no, it but, can just no, be... I don't. Okay, the reason I call it a but sexual threat is that least. it's a romantic. Okay. Thank you. It's a romantic. I was like, say, let's not fall into like Freud here. No, no, I don't mean that. I don't mean that. I just mean if he dies, presumably he will be replaced. In theory, at least, right? Like this yeah. has got to be fear for him of who is going to take who's going to take care of my right, wife and right, child, right? right? And so succession. <laughs> if if he doesn't like this guy. <sighs> Just, just, I'm just thinking on a symbolic level, right? You're about to die. You're worried about your young wife. You're already feeling old and frail. He talks about in several places how much he doesn't like the fact that he's supposed to be very careful and not get up. I mean, it makes him feel very impotent as a man, right? And a human yeah. being. Just a lack of life force. And so the rival, the potential rival comes up on the scene and is like, oh, let me help you up, old man. Like, that, that's a blow. That's let a blow. Me, let me play baseball with your son, old man. Exactly. Yeah. It's yeah. A, he's a, he's the so okay. Instead of sexual threat, I'll say rival. He's the rival. He's a potential rival. And it's at least threat. at least there's like in his own mind, his own it's mind. set up to be that way. Yeah. You don't think there's nothing to indicate right no, now. No, that there's that's nothing to indicate. His wife is anything but faithful and is going right. to be completely right. heartbroken when he dies. But and there's I, just no way your mind doesn't go to what's going to happen to my young wife after I die. And that like sense of that I'm going to call it jealousy, just for the sake of conversation. Right. That sense of jealousy is sort of. It's the sort of, I'll just use the word flaw in our narrator that makes him a complex, interesting character. Yes. Like at no point do we feel like this guy's just a perfect guy who has all these answers. Right. It mm -hmm. makes him feel flawed and it makes him feel personable. Like we can, of we can course. relate to him. Of course. Because we all feel that way in various, I mean, there's similar, you know, Nobody wants to be replaced. You know, you always hear about these people, you know, happily married and one of the spouses is going to die. And, like they give the other one permission to remarry. That's not me. I'm going to be like, you better just mourn me every day for the rest of your life. Write me songs and poems. What, what's this marry again nonsense? No. I, we have, Bethany was telling me that she was talking about this with some friends and they were like, I tell him you got to get married all the time. He's like, I could never do that. I don't remember. I couldn't tell you which friend it was anymore. But. Well, I was just talking to a couple and they, it was the same. 
I, apparently this is a conversation couples have. And then, so the husband was like, I love you so much. He's, he gives her this beautiful, beautiful speech about, I could never love anyone but you. And if you were to die, I would stay single the like rest in of the my princess life. Bride. And mourn your memory. To which she responded, that's so cute. I'm getting remarried. <laughs> <laughs> so, just very different perspective. I just, I can relate to him feeling like, right. hey, I'm not even in the grave you, yet. And yeah. Hamlet's uncle's already making the move here. Yeah. And it does feel like, like if I were to think about, I don't, okay, if I were to think about being jealous of like my wife getting married again, you're automatically going to go to like, you probably feel like, oh, she's going to find someone who like is better in all the things I'm bad of at. Of course. Yeah, right. For young. He's young and he's physically strong and all that kind of stuff. He's still in the use of his life and he's doing all the things with, with, with John's son that John can't do. He's out there tossing the ball. He's being right. the surrogate dad. Now he's, he's phrasing it as the big brother. Right. Okay, right. so I mean, I'm right. not saying that he really is still, a rival, but it's, it's all it's yeah. very complicated. Right, these things are never that simple. Right, it's so like does if this I was make thinking... you? Does this make you guys think that whatever transgression that John Bowden is guilty of, that it's probably been inflated in John Ames's mind because of this potential rivalry that he feels? David, you can't really answer that because you know what the, you know what it is, right? I I I, I actually haven't read it in a while. I don't remember the specifics of it, but I want to say this: I don't think I don't think that I. Okay, so I don't think not remembering the details of it. I don't. Oh, you just muted the line. Okay, I don't think that the how to put. I I think it's the other way around. Like I think the rival. He's inflamed the rivalry. More so because of his criticisms of yes. young Jack rather oh, I than see. Okay. that's also how I how I feel that if somebody okay so you're about to die you're already worried about who could potentially replace me and then someone you don't like is a, as my mother would put it sniffing around <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know that's that would just you know inflate the whole situation well right? and he and multiple times through this section and well through the book in general but especially these recent pages he refers to his own weakness in various things yeah like when he's like i felt like doing the waltz because it came on the radio and i tried to dance but then i thought i better grab a book in case i die so that at least yeah. i died with a book in my hands yeah. yeah and he's like so he's very aware and he talks about how you know he fell asleep watching baseball because he couldn't stay awake and there's all these little references to how the fact that he feels he weak woke up and his wife was was asleep at his feet, mm. and she was so yeah. relieved. Like, you know she thought he was going to die, that mm -hmm. she yeah. was dying. And something. She makes this beautiful vigil. Yeah, and then and then he sits. He has to sit there and watch a movie about some some <laughs> depressed French people doing something for, with dep yeah. depressed English people or something. Yeah. No, that was you a know, beautiful image of devotion. But yes, but still the weakness, yes. Yeah. The, the discussion we had together. a couple weeks ago. Oh, yeah, yeah. What are tied Go together, ahead. David? Well, devotion and weakness are also like we just we, yeah. we most a character is or a person is most able to display their devotion to someone in that other person's moment of mo moment of greatest weakness, mm. which is why I think um, like the Garden of the Gethsemane, Gethsemane thing is interesting because when his disciples had a chance to be most with him in um, his weakness, with him in his weakness, they abandoned him, uh -huh. or, you know, not, and then Peter, you know. Okay, so going back to our idea of rivals here, uh, Lila also struggles with rivals, though. Basically, her and all the church women, right? They have mm. all been the surrogate wife all this time, providing That's, his food. It's and, all about the surrogate idea. Yes, so interesting. Right? Surrogate so brother, surrogate they, father, so surrogate So when the, yeah. she gets married, they keep doing it. 
figuring she's probably not a very good cook, which she wasn't, he admits. But it hurts and she her. Knows. She's crying in the, you know, in the pantry because they keep, they keep being his wife. Yeah. They keep being the surrogate wife. And so she feels her own failure in that moment. So I think there's a lot of parallels going on with all these surrogate relationships. Yeah. You know, by the way, I don't know that the book has said that her name is Lila yet. Well, I was just going by what right. you said. I'm so sorry. anybody that now knows that there's a third book in the series called Lila knows that. Sorry, it's the about young her. wife. My yeah. bad. It, I mean, I don't think it doesn't matter. I don't think. But that's what yeah, Lila is about. Um, Actually, I think I learned that on the Close Reads Facebook page. So the oh, spoilers okay. are going back to y'all. Y'all yeah, get exactly. the point for this point. <laughs> exactly. Because I've never read this before. I don't know who it is. It's not really is. that much of a spoiler anyway. It's just a name. And that there's another book about her. We have to you. wrap up soon, but what, one of the things that we appreciated about Marilyn Robinson um, from an earlier podcast was her – she's not a Gnostic. She recognizes and embraces through John mm-hmm. Ames the, the physical wonder of life. He loves the his like physical existence in the world. But this yeah, is the, the other side of that coin. Physicality. The, yeah, exactly. And this is the other side of that coin that our bodies do inevitably get old and they begin to break down and we we lose the thing that made us feel alive. And I think this is kind of like a realistic um, acknowledgement that even our physical – the wonder of our physical existence in the world has its limits. Yeah. Well, as he says, he broke a finger – playing baseball when he was 22 and it hasn't gotten straighter. It's yeah. only gotten more crooked. Yeah. In fact, he says on page 115, there's a mystery in the thought of the recreation of an old man as an old man with all the defects and injuries of what is called long life faithfully preserved in him and all their claims and all their tendencies honored too, as in the steady progress of arthritis in my left knee. I have thought sometimes that the Lord must hold the whole of our lives in memory, so to speak. Of course he does. And memory is the wrong word, no doubt. But the finger I broke sliding into second base when I was 22 years old is crookeder than ever. And I can interpret that fact as an intimate attention, taking Herbert's view. So he's like, he's generous in that his understanding of the way age breaks us down, right? There's a yeah. faith, faith, the, the, the our claim, all the claims and tendencies of age are honored as well. Like that, that's a very interesting word choice there, the idea of honoring honoring the, the things in us that get old, the things that are broken down. Yeah, and I think that connects, too, to the idea of that we never, ever get rid of our sorrows. Uh, from 104, mm-hmm. our dream of life will end as dreams do end, abruptly and completely, when the sun rises, when the light comes, and we will think all that fear yeah. and all that yep. grief were about nothing. But that cannot be true. See, this is where I love what this paragraph goes, because that's yeah. kind of the mantra, right? One day we won't suffer anymore. Everything will be forgotten. Yeah. And he says, but that cannot be true. I can't believe we will forget our sorrows altogether. That would mean forgetting that we had lived, humanly speaking. Hmm. Sorrow seems to me a great part of the substance of human life. For yeah. example, at this very moment, I feel a kind of loving grief for you as you read this, because I do not know you. And I think that's so true. I think that what will happen in the resurrection is our sorrow will be redeemed, not that, that it will be forgotten. And, I, yeah. and that's a mystery, and I don't know what that means. But, I mean, Jesus still has his scars. I always think about that, right? Hmm. And they're beautiful now. I think that's what the resurrection does. The scars will be beautiful, and it won't be that they never happened. 
Well, on the previous page, he says, he's talking about that Isaac Watt lines, and he says, I have always wondered what relationship yes. this present reality bears to an ultimate reality. So he's not a Gnostic, but the, you know, he's, he's, one of the things he's doing here is he's exploring that idea. In some ways, I feel like that line, I mean, I hate to do this to a book, but in some ways, that line feels, for me, like oh, the, yeah. the thesis thing that I come out of it thinking about the most. It's at least the question of the line he that... keeps that, exploring that, it. Right, right. That whatever it means when we die, it's not going to mean that we're not human anymore, right? He keeps yeah. going back to that. So it's very much not that we're not going to die and become angels, right? We're still going to be humans. And and so some somehow we are going to keep, somehow we're going to lose sin, but keep everything that's human. And along the way, as he says on 102, when things are taking their ordinary course, it's hard to remember what matters. So there is something bigger going on here, but as it's happening, it's hard to remember that. And he yeah. keeps going back to that. We lack the perspective to yeah. see what's important as it's happening. Yeah. Hmm. I keep thinking of, um, remember in the purgatory, in Dante's purgatory, I'm sorry, sorry, in, um, I think it's the Paradiso, maybe it's purgatory, when Dante crosses the river, I think it's Lethe, L-E-T-H-E, it's the river of forgetting. And he forgets all of his sins, and his that's the moment where his atonement is completed. And I keep thinking about whether or not that is actually true. I, hmm. I, what I appreciate that Dante says whoa, is that— Whoa, whoa, whoa. You're accusing Dante of not possible, <laughs> not, maybe not being true in every theological matter when he brings up in three, three long epic poems— Perhaps he strayed a little bit from the truth in this one. Get out of here, man. I know. Well, it's a I mean, it just drastic depends, it depends claim. what he means. It depends what he means by that, because of course that's that's language that God uses that He will remember our sins no right, more. Right. But I don't. I don't think it means he forgets it like he has amnesia. Right. Yeah. Right. The what Dante says is that our conscience won't sting us anymore after that forgetting moment. Um, but again, you're exactly right, Angelina. What it what it really means is it mean that we'll be completely blotted from our memory. Somehow, it, that does not seem true to me. But the yeah, what's the? But what's sorry. the opposite of that? What's the opposite of that? If if it were, if they're I not, guess, I guess. But maybe we just can't know that on this side of the resurrection. Maybe you know, like the to try to. Even to conversations where you're like, well, the sin nature part of me will be gone, but my humanity will still be here. Yeah, I mean, right. I personally what does can't that sort, mean? Can't sort that out. I've struggled so much in my life trying to figure out, you know, who is Angelina and who is sinful Angelina, you know? Like, <laughs> yeah. Where's the line? Yeah, and like what's yeah. the relationship between the scars and conscience? Because yes. if our scars yes. remain, but our conscience is not right. pinged or whatever, what's the word? Burdened? Then... What's that? How does that yeah, work? Maybe it, How becomes, can you... maybe it becomes a battle scar, and the memory then is of a great victory. And so it's not painful. Mm, that's right. like, um, oh, is, it in, is it in Lord of the Rings? Yeah, 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 yeah. I was thinking the, the exact same thing. With, is it with Frodo? Am I thinking, what am I thinking of? I don't know. I, I should not bring up a reference. This like 1% yeah. in my imagination. The Facebook page is going to yeah. go nuts. Um, and but then, it's, it's funny, David, because my, my, my memory went exactly the exact same thing. I was like, there's something in the Lord of the Rings about this. And I'm kind of. That, but I, I would not be surprised if that was a Tolkien-esque idea. It's clear that I need to reread those last two books I've again. I've been thinking about that lately. Close reads. We might. We should. That would be. What are we doing? Like all three of them? Two, yeah, two year close reads. I don't know, man, but that would be super fun. 
because we could get into I'm not all ag- of the I'm not against this idea. We could get into the Arthurian legend sources and the Anglo-Saxon sources and the Norse sources. I could totally Our listeners have to understand if we do this, it's going to take us like a good solid year, though. So. Six years. It's a six-year commitment. Oh, my goodness. Um, bonus material. Well, that's a bonus material. Like... Deep cuts. Close reads okay, deep that's, cuts. That's the close reads cruise, and we're going to go yeah. with yeah. 2,000 of our closest listeners, and we're just going to read The close reads Summer Institute. Yes. <laughs> there you go. Okay. Well, we need to wrap this up. Um, Angelina's got, you got to pick up your daughter. We've been going well over an hour. So let's let's go start going with some final thoughts here. Um, and Tim, you, Angelina, you go first in case you need to just duck out. I just, for a book that's not about anything it's about everything i mean these are things i think about too what is the relationship between this reality and the next and every time that i think i have a handle on it every time that i think i could say to you this is the relationship this is how this is going to work uh god in his great mercy shows me loud and clear (laughs) bright lights neon flashing sign uh, that i'm wrong and that i'm not capable of ever fully understanding this like maybe he'll give me glimpses here and there but uh but I don't know. And also as someone who has dealt with a great deal of suffering in my life and a lot of scars, I'm particularly interested in all the talk about what is going to happen. What, what is the me? I'm obsessed with the question, what is the meaning of my suffering? So I am so fascinated that how much he talks about our sorrows and what's going to happen and what's going to happen with our scars and our wounds. And I mean, I- that line about the sometimes the scar that doesn't heal sometimes. Ah. That was beautiful. Can I ask you a personal question that I can cut out if necessary? On the air to yeah. 10,000 of my questions. At least it's not live, right? <laughs> um, okay, so given what you're saying right now, and would you say then that these ideas that he's exploring here are, do they do they help you? And they, are they encouraging as you process suffering or, or is it, is, does it make it more difficult? My initial entry into the book made it more difficult, but... Now I think that, now I would think, now I think it's actually helping somewhat. Like, is he answering, is he a- asking and contemplating questions that, that, hel- that, that you want to contemplate along with him or that, that help you? Or is that something you don't know right now? Well, um, um, you know what? Or is that too personal of a question? I'd say that the book is helping me to be comfortable with the mystery of not knowing. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, but, but is definitely affirming my, my desire to ponder these questions. I mean, I, I can say just like Jack Ames here, John Ames, that, uh, when I look back on so many things that have happened, it's such a mess that it's just almost impossible to sort it out hmm. in, in the way that he talks about these relationships, you know, who's to blame the parent, the child, the prodigal son, uh, Sometimes it just seems like such a mess. But that that one line that I quoted just a minute ago, that really, really struck me. And those of you who are my Facebook friend know that I posted it. But it's the line on 122. Transgression, that is legalism. There is Mm. never just one transgression. Mm. There is a wound in the flesh of human life that scars when it heals Mm. and often enough seems never to heal at all. And what page I, is that? That's page 122. And oddly enough, that did not discourage me, but it sort of comforted me to that, that it's okay to live in the reality of scars and wounds that are never going to heal in, in this life. Hmm. Hmm. Because I, I think people who go through really, really difficult suffering, like rare suffering, say somebody loses the, a child or something like that. That's just rare and very, very hard suffering. Um, I think that 
so often the comfort we try to give them just feels like an empty platitude. You know, well, you're yeah. young, you can have more children or something, you know, just, or, you know, the young woman whose husband dies. And, well, you're young, you can marry again. Like, I know people who've had that said to them, and that's a horrible thing to say to someone in their, in yeah. their grief. So, Or even when you try to be encouraging, like, with the God's got your back type stuff. Yeah. Like, I, yeah. I, don't, I don't mean to make, I don't mean to make light of that, that, that advice, but it can feel. It can, when someone's in the depth of, of grief and sorrow that someone else just cannot understand, it's, it's very easy for well-meaning yeah. sayings well-intentioned compassion which he talks about that he talks about well-meaning cruelty in this book right it was it was inconsiderate but well-meaning right yes. that really yeah, that really a, hit home when they me. brought the, the food yes. and they fixed the things in the that, kitchen that is a reality i know very well the well-intentioned mm. compassion that is very inconsiderate and hurtful mm. Mm. um and but and, but again it's not something you can point to the finger and like you did this horrible thing to me no we're just limited human beings who can't fully enter into someone else's yeah. suffering and even in our attempts to make it better, we somehow make it worse. That's just the reality of this world we're in. So in some weird way, that, those kinds of lines don't encourage me, but they encourage me that it's okay to stay in this place and to have it be a mystery. It's like you post, what's the quote you paid? I can speak English still. What's the quote you posted on your Facebook page? Um, uh, there's one of the church fathers, everywhere, be, be kind for everywhere yes. you go. Everyone you meet is fighting a great battle yes, or something like Philo that. Of you, ju- you just you just posted that, Angelina. Yeah, that's one of my on my Facebook page. You know, they ask you for like the quotes that you want to live by or whatever. That's one of my quotes. That's been up there since the day I started my Facebook page. Yeah, be kind for everyone you meet is fighting it's a fighting great a battle. secret battle. Oh, mine says yeah. a secret battle, which I oh, that's a good translation too. Yeah, oh, I, I like, like that. that. Spoke that Alexandrian language, so, you know, got to translate it. There you go. Because, you know, Alexandrian is a language. Uh, Tim, <laughs> do, you have any, do you have any final thoughts you'd like to... Nothing to add beyond what Angelina... Like to add to the top. Nothing to add beyond what Angelina said. So I'm just going to kind of say it in a slightly different way. I appreciate how much Marilyn Robinson abstains from telling the story from... Um, a God's eye perspective, like John Ames is, is he is skeptical of his own narrative ability because he's a fallible human being. And in some way that seems so much more, um, Oh gosh. It, it seems to like, it honors that God is the storyteller. We're not, I don't know. I'm, I'm not, articulating that terribly clearly it's such a comfort to think that god's telling our story we're not telling our story and as much as we want to understand it to get to angelina's point it's really hard to understand it in the middle of it sometimes 20 years later we can understand it sometimes but even then do we really understand it so i appreciate like the the benevolent storytelling as an to me it's a deep acknowledgement that God is the one who is both in the audience and in some way his story is still being told. Hmm. Hmm. Well. What about you, David? Final thoughts? Well, my final thought is that, as promised, we need to give away some close read swag. Oh, yeah. Remember, we promised we'd give away a mug, and then last week we couldn't, you know— Tim couldn't work. Tim the couldn't internet. work the internet. Yeah. and uh, we'll just throw Tim. We're gonna throw Tim under the. 
the digital bus. Uh, but we need to give away a Close Read mug. Thanks to everybody who went and subscribed to the Close Reads feed. If you have not done that, please do that. Um, and thanks to everyone who did give reviews and comments and stuff. Those, that was awesome to, to see that feedback. Um, and it did actually help charts-wise. So thank you. But the winner at Randomly, cho randomly Chosen is Katie Osborne. Yay! And Katie Osborne, Katie had... A doozy of a time trying to leave a review so she tried and tried i don't know if she ever actually finished it but she did leave a comment and she did leave the you know she did subscribe so um perseverance gets paid off exactly. at Cersei. No the, doubt. the universe was kind to katie <laughs> so congratulations to katie osborne send me a message on facebook and we'll get that uh, mug sent out to you so thanks for doing that all right i guess that is it this has been Another good conversation. Thanks to you both this was, for this was fun. I love this one. Yeah, this was good. Uh, for Angelina Stanford and for Tim McIntosh and for all of us here at Cersei, I am David Kern saying farewell on Close Reads on the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Mm -hmm.